to Fidget, a BFRB podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason. And I'm Adele. And together we co-host Fidget, a podcast for your BFRB toolbox. Now, unlike our normal open conversation episodes, this is another experimental one, where we piece together a narrative arc around one specific theme. Today's theme is boundaries. And there's a lot of ground to cover. So let's get to our first guest. Well, hello. I am Joe Elisalde. I am 40 years old now. I remember I was 12 years old and going to swimming lessons. And I was so self-conscious about the acne on my back. And I there was just overarching shame about it. It wasn't just a, oh, you know, nuts, this is ugly and convenient. No, no. This was almost like a, I am a bad person. I've got to get rid of it. And I remember around that age, I started picking and I didn't know why I was doing it. And it continued the shame cycle. And for me, it was picking up my, probably my face, my back, my chest, upper arms. And I remember anywhere from like one to three hours, there was one New Year's Eve. My whole family went to bed. We never really celebrated New Year's Eve. I was trying to get to bed by midnight, but I was picking and I would be so disappointed staying up to midnight like Mm. what a lousy way to spend the new year's i just my goal was to get in bed reflecting back on that time i asked joe what she thought was going on now i see that i did not know how to handle negative emotions i just i didn't grow up in a family that talked about those hard things and and me approaching them and talking about like even like in me telling my mom hey i pick up my skin i don't know why it bothers me she did not know. She had not very awesome, wonderful, caring mom, but she did not have any words of comfort as to to know how to help and meet me where I'm at emotionally. And so I didn't have skills growing up. How do you deal with embarrassment? How do you deal with, you know, not doing your best? How do you deal with um, a boy not liking you? Like, mm. I like these boys. They just they never liked me back. I'm going to throw the ones I picked. I don't know. <laughs> rejected. You know, all those things play into that. And mm. so I remember being up at night and when I'd be picking at my skin, the worst days of me picking were when I had those moments where I felt really embarrassed at school or it just wasn't a good emotional day. It's like, that's how my body worked out those feelings. And now I call it a medication. It medicated my feelings because I didn't face them. It became a cycle. I stuffed the feelings and medicated them. It's probably no different than why, you know, some people drink or eat or smoke. I mean, whatever you do to cover up emotions from bubbling up because they will get you. Like, you can't hide emotions. I loved, I think you had a guest, Tyler, a couple, I think it was June or July, and he was saying, don't kill the messenger. Emotions are a messenger and they're trying to tell you something. It's not necessarily, they're not good or bad. It's just they're trying to tell you something. I've learned that over the years, and I can say I'm a recovering avoidant personality. <laughs> I I was very avoidant and would push things aside and wouldn't face them growing up. As a fellow person in avoidant recovery, I like the word medicated Joe uses. It's very satisfying. As discussed in episode 17 about beauty, I've hidden myself in so many different ways over the years because I believed I wasn't good enough. If I'm people-pleasing or whatever, showing this false mirage or whatever of myself, I know intellectually that person loves this facade of me. 
I cannot fool myself. I know they don't love the real me because I've hidden that part from them. So it, it doesn't help. Pleasing people is not a solution. <laughs> it won't make, make that guilt or, or unlovableness go away. What's with this short-sighted strategy? Joe has a very compassionate way of looking at it. For me, it made me capable of dealing with the emotion in the moment. It's what I knew how to do or my, like they always say, like all these, you know, defense mechanisms and everything we learn in childhood, they helped us survive. They had their purpose. Um, and from, yeah, for me that I did not know how to deal. I was overwhelmed at the thought of, I'm not good enough. I did something really dumb at school today and everyone, you know, fill in the blank or, or even if someone just thought critically of me, like someone made fun of me for sitting in the back seat because I was 17 years old. Like, well, I, I don't mind sitting in the back seat. It's safer. But for her, it was a big deal. And I just, I took it personally, like, wow, maybe I'm not like this cool, you know, teenager or whatever. I don't even remember. I can't remember anymore. But it's like, you know, kids can be mean because she was probably insecure too. Mm. <laughs> it's it's just like, you know, those comments when someone disapproved of me, I didn't have the self-worth to realize that doesn't matter. That's their opinion. It, it's not not necessarily the truth. If there is truth, I can take it in. But if not, let it go. And and take whose opinion does matter. Oof. So I didn't I didn't have the skills, so I numbed it. <laughs> Before we continue with Joe's story, let's introduce Eric Callison into this episode. We've had two Erics on this show already. This is the Eric from episode 13. And as we keep reminding you, Fidget is an evolving experiment. So back in episode 13, we hadn't quite figured out our process yet, and we neglected some introductions. So he's going to give a quick overview of his BFRB so you can get to know him a little better first. It won't, won't show up um, on the audio, but I'm going to hold my hand up to the camera. You know, um, uh, my, my biggest trigger area is my fingers. I have been able to kind of channel it into just my thumbs. And so there's, there's an area right here on my ring finger on my right hand that used to be really bad that's basically gone. And then it used to be the whole side of my thumb. Then somehow a couple of years ago, I actually got like a clean spot in the middle. It like split into two. <laughs> like Pangea. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, because the continents divided. Um, and then I got rid of this bottom spot and, and just kind of kept it to the top spot. Um, so I can see, you know, little physical reminders, but I wouldn't want to say that that's the only measure of success dealing with the BFRB. So far, Joe has shared that as a kid, she felt unlovable. And that's painful. Too painful, in fact, to really face. So she found a way to numb and avoid it, which was her skin picking. When I reflect on my own relationship with my BFRB, I also just hated it. I was so disgusted to look down at my hands. I think a common way we view these parts of ourselves we don't like is that it's just a phase or a bad habit, and we grow out of it. I think there's some denial there. I used to wet the bed a lot growing up, like every day, until I was 10. And everyone just said, okay, you're gonna grow out of it, you're gonna grow out of it. I think I was waiting for the same thing with my BFRB. Hate it, hide it, wait for it to go away. 
Do BFRBs go away by themselves? At what point are we stuck with them? Here's Eric. We're going to work through this. And that's never more true than yourself. You know, you are stuck with yourself. And, and so if you've gone and done something stupid, you can't just pretend it didn't happen. I mean, you can, but like, you know, you can't escape from yourself. So you have to deal with it. So that's, I think that's part of it is, am I escaping or am I working through this? It's like a marriage. It's like a relationship. You have to have a healthy relationship with yourself. So maybe escaping isn't the best strategy. I am who I am. But that's scary because what if I'm not happy with who I am? What if I feel incomplete and broken? I just finished this book called Let's Talk About Hard Things by Anna Sale. Highly recommend it. In it, one person talks about the difference between asking for a fix and asking for help. I felt incomplete, like I needed a fix. And I applied the numbing, self-medicating, the coping to fill in my incompleteness. Yeah, it's like, how can I get another unhealthy person to complete me? <laughs> like, it's not a mix, that'll work. And instead, how can I be the healthiest person I can set boundaries that show people how to treat me, not arrogantly or pridefully, but I've heard, like, you teach people how you will be treated. And um, you can go to extremes in that, but you will get what you tolerate. I've heard this before, you teach people how you are to be treated. But I've never really sat down and sketched out a plan for it. And is that super intuitive? Not having a model for healthy boundaries, I didn't know how to go about this. I think about this eat, pray, love mentality of learning how to be with yourself first. Joe said she was hoping a relationship would complete her. For me, being avoidant, I didn't feel ready to date because of my incompleteness. My friend Lucas, who appeared on episode 11, <laughs> recently gave me some dating advice. He told me to try to avoid the word until. Oh, I'm not going to date until I have my job figured out. Or I'm not cool enough until I've learned how to rock climb. Or I'm not going to date until the summer where we can go on picnics. Or my mental health or BFRB is in a place I like it. Again, I believed I was still growing. And I mean... I am still growing, but I can't wait until I've stopped growing before I start taking some risks and putting myself out there. However you want to view it, unlovable, not enough, incomplete, I eroded my own self-worth and I wanted validation from others. And wanting external validation, it was hard to push back or disappoint people. I only wanted to please them. I didn't think I deserved healthy boundaries. I never wanted to confront people because it's uncomfortable. And, and that's, I think, the start of healthy boundaries. It feels uncomfortable. You've never done it before, usually. And you're saying no. And what I've heard about people pleasing, and I'm also a recovering people pleaser, uh, <laughs> is pleasing people is not so much about what's in their, the other person's best interest but it's in keeping my own anxiety down and dealing with a negative response from them. And that, that hurts. It's like, <laughs> I'm not so nice, <laughs> but I really, I really am. 
God, I try to be. Raising kids has been the best test of that is, and I fail all the time, but trying to do what's in their best interest, they're going to get upset and they're going to push against those boundaries that I set there for them, whether it's too much screen time, desserts. And if I would just let them, like for that, it's a little bit easier to define because I, I know like, well, no, you can't eat your dessert before supper. Listening to Joe talk about boundaries, the issue goes beyond the fact I don't want to enforce boundaries. I don't even know when they're stepped on. If only I had some sort of alarm system to let me know. That would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, like, when am I letting someone trample my boundaries? I would like to know that too. Um, I have heard it said once, which was really helpful. And this is marital advice, but it's, it totally relates to individuals as well, is when you realize your boundaries or your triggers are stepped on. So marriage is the other person, but, you know, it, it, like, or if you relate it to, like, for, for me, and even you mentioned, like, I'm oblivious to sometimes when people step over my boundaries. Um, I'm just, I'm learning them. I'm developing still. and when I realize that they have stepped over a boundary that, you know, is unhealthy that I should have had there, or it would be in my best interest to have, that's a victory. Even if it happened like three years ago, like, wow, you know, so take it. It's a learning process. It's not a fail or all, like a pass or fail. Like life is not a pass or fail. It's a, it's a journey. And it's a learning process. And so how this relates to marriage therapy is you sometimes you get in this crazy cycle where someone sets your trigger off and your default. So there's a split second before that default, whether your default is to throw things or to maybe it's to run away and just sulk and get in your room and not talk to someone. But before you do that, whatever your retaliating behavior is or whatever that, you know, not in the best interest of behavior is before you react there's a split second where you have that choice and that's the ideal. Cause if we recognized someone stepping over triggering me before I react and go all crazy, I can respond in a loving, healthy way. Now, a lot of times that doesn't happen, especially when you in bad patterns in marriage. However, I was taught and I strongly believe this. We fight or this or that happens. Let's say hypothetically, I don't recognize my trigger. Like, he blew my boundary. I got mad. I yelled and screamed and threw salad on the floor. I did throw a dozen eggs on the floor once. <laughs> yeah. And so after I threw those dozen eggs, I calmed down. I'm like, oh, he stepped on my boundary in such or such a way. That's why I felt upset. That is a victory. The victory. And like, obviously there was a little bit of loss there with the eggs on the floor, but the victory and to really be graceful with ourselves, where we're at, accept ourselves, and that we are okay, we are enough just the way we are. And if I never give myself that chance for grace, I'm going to go through life with this win-lose mentality. And because I threw eggs on the floor, I'm a nothing. I blew it. I'm never going to be a good wife, or it's my fault. This marriage is ending. You know, there's a ton of things those negative thoughts can go to. So I've learned that it's so hot. There's, it's never too late to go back to like your realization. I don't care if you're like, you know, 15 years or like 115. I mean, like, it's never too late to say, Oh, you know, I realized this lesson of growth in my life. And this is, you know, where my boundaries should be, you know, helping me out and where I need to put them down. And 
then you work on it. Every failure is an opportunity for growth and learning. And then it's, I I don't live it. I love to, but um, it's a learning process. And it's, but I do say I'm in a lot better place now than I was three years ago. So let's talk more about awareness. Before getting the courage to enforce, we need the skills to even know what we're looking for. Here's Eric about how we develop our awareness and comprehension skills over time. I studied Spanish in high school, and I remember one day, just for fun, for fun, I turned ahead like 15 chapters just to see what was in the book later in the book. And I was, I was actually studying it by myself over the summer to try to pass a test when I got back to school. So I turned, I turned the page like way, way far ahead, and, re- and I read about how stem-changing verbs of the third conjugation experience an additional change in the third person singular and plural uh, in the preterite tense. And I just like, I have no idea what that is. I'm going back to my present tense verb. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting that I did that because I kept uh, working through the textbook and, and doing the assignments and things. So by the time I got to chapter 15, I was like, oh, duh. Yeah. I, okay, fine. Easy. Yeah, of course. The you know, predatory sense. <laughs> like I, I remembered that page, you know, I was like, oh, Okay. And so part of it is having terminology to even talk about it, being comfortable with the experience of talking about it. And with that awareness and the skills to read and interpret our BFRB, we're developing a kind of fluency. We can begin to recognize patterns in our own feelings and become familiar with our responses to life events. It becomes a little easier to put our finger on what's wrong so we can respond quicker Instead of dwelling for months and years, what if we could respond in time to actually address the boundaries that are being overlooked? The fluency helps with the courage to respond, because it doesn't just have to be chaos. We can develop a plan. For several years, I was in a pretty toxic relationship where my boundaries were frequently being overstepped in subtle and insidious ways. Although I couldn't pinpoint exactly why I felt uncomfortable, I knew things weren't right. I remember fantasizing about that day when my partner would finally do something that was so bad, so horrible, that I would finally have the right to scream and shout and let all these pent-up feelings explode. And when that day came, well, I didn't explode. I couldn't yell. I didn't even want to shout. I guess I realized that this is just not how I respond to conflict. But ever since then... I've been striving to know and recognize my boundaries as they are being crossed, or even before they're being crossed, even in small ways. I might still freeze in the moment, but you can be sure to get a phone call from me about a week later when I've had a bit of time to process and I'm ready to talk about my feelings. So this goes back to what Joe was saying. Now that we have awareness, there's just a tiny bit of spaciousness where we can decide on how we want to act. What if we could prepare for that? What is our ideal response? One thing that comes to mind in my, my job in the public sector is having a like, what, what are you going to say when an angry citizen confronts you about X? One thing that you can say is, well, let me look into that. Or I don't know the answer to that, but let me go talk to my team or 
you know, the answer is, is never yes. And it's never no, it's always let's look at the data. That's kind of the frame of mind that you need to be in. If you're talking to like a city council member that's getting really punchy about something. Again, that's not always possible. But it's, it's having that when you go into this interaction, that's potentially going to be confrontational, having the words having the what am I going to do when this happens? I think that's very similar to what you've described as becoming fluent in the language of your BFRB is what, okay, I picked, I I made it worse. What happens now? Do I freak out and give, give all of my emotional space to the fact that there's one tiny little area that I've picked or what, what do I say to myself? What do I say to my body? You know, what, what is, what is the phrase that I'm going to say? And for me, sometimes it's bless your heart, brain, you're doing your best, you know, that you're totally wrong, but you're trying, you know, and uh, just being able to put it in those terms can really dispel the anxiety or the angst that comes from that kind of situation. And, and hopefully, you know, not lose the progress, like you say, that you're making with yourself even if there's a physical manifestation that could be interpreted as a lack of progress, how am I going to treat that? How am I going to deal with that? What is, what is my go-to line, you know, or what, what am I going to say to, to help my body and to not, to not send my brain kind of on this self-destructive spiral? Something Joe said earlier was that life is not a pass-fail. It's really profound for me to accept that it's not realistic for boundaries to not be stepped on. I was treading so very lightly. In episode 17, I said I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. Well, another phase in life I went through was wanting to be a professional bank robber. I don't know if that's a profession, but I thought it would just be the coolest job. There's this scene in Ocean's 12 where George Clooney is like, How did you get by the laser field? And then cut to the guy just puts on headphones and like dances through all these security lasers. I think that's my avoidance strategy. Slink through every possible conflict. But Jason, this is not realistic. Stepping on a boundary is inevitable. I kind of think of it like riding a bike. You can't really read a book to learn how to ride a bike. You just got to do it. Make some mistakes. You're going to fall off that bike. And really, that's the only way to learn. Yeah. And if you don't notice it in the moment, you can notice it afterward. And that's still a victory. And yeah, I love the bike example, like just falling off the bike and all this, like, that's how you learn. My partner's a food scientist by trade. And so I'll tell her, hey, we're just doing research. We're just going to try this out. And if something goes wrong, we can say, well, we did some research and we have concluded that this is a terrible bed <laughs> and we're moving on. Yeah. But it is coming back to the whole, how, how are we successful? You know, what is, what is a victory? I think sometimes a victory is just recognizing, okay, I'm on the hamster wheel about something that I don't need to be. You know, I'm, I'm investing way too much emotional energy in something that doesn't deserve it. And I'm moving on. Congratulations, you win. You know, you, you identified the vortex of anxiety and you, you, you left the vortex. It's funny. Experimenting is actually the fastest way to learn. You get that immediate feedback. 
In engineering, there's this thing called limit testing. You should look up a YouTube video of how Boeing tests their airplane wings. They slowly bend them until they snap. The wing fails, but that's the point. They're testing. They're learning. They're intentionally wanting it to fail. They're expecting it, and they have their cameras ready. They want to find the boundary, and they do so by going past it. Before, when I was in denial, I was crossing my fingers that I never crossed the boundary. So when it did happen, I'd scramble to improvise a response. Instead, what if I wasn't shy or avoidant, but moving toward the boundary purposefully? I know I'm going to fall off my bike. I know I'm going to step on some Vatican security laser. I know some city councilor is going to yell at me. So like Eric was saying, let's prepare for when that happens. Let's admit to ourselves we're learning. We're not perfect. We can make mistakes. Yeah. Speaking of Spanish, you know, I, I remember my Spanish teacher in high school that I was studying with was always, if he messed up, he'd just be like, no, it's this. Sorry, I got it wrong. And I remember other teachers that would be like, no, I never, I never get anything wrong. And even when it was obvious that they were wrong, they would like insist that they were not wrong. Paradoxically, being confident enough to admit that you're wrong is better than pretending that you're not wrong. I, I mean, that's not revolutionary, but in the context of a BFRB, it's saying, I give myself permission to mess up, to admit that I messed up, you know, to admit that I picked, and we're going to move on. And that's better than pretending that I didn't or finding some other way to escape from the, the emotional turmoil of having picked or whatever. Is Okay, I picked. Okay, screw me. Move on. I still love myself. We're moving on. It's as if there's a three-step process. One, having the self-worth to define healthy boundaries. Two, having the awareness to recognize when those boundaries are being stepped on. And then three, having the courage to enforce those boundaries. When it comes to trichotillomania, sometimes I only really know how much I've crossed my own boundaries when I see the physical evidence. A pile of hair on the floor or a balding spot on my head. And when I work up the courage, I grab my vacuum, grab the clippers, acknowledge where I'm at so that I can move forward. And regarding step two, a new thought dawns. Joe, do you think getting your boundaries stepped on triggers your BFRB? Totally. I think it's because a lot of times my BFRB exists to cope with my feelings. And when someone steps on my boundaries, I'm pre I'm feeling pretty like uneasy. I've got a pit in my stomach or I'm feeling mad sometimes or I'm feeling used in my gut. I know something's wrong. Like I shouldn't be allowing that person to, whether it's taking advantage of me in some way or whatever it is they're doing. And I'm trying to process it. And so healthy ideal world would be me stepping aside or saving some time at the whenever I can throughout the day or at the end of the day to process those feelings and maybe, you know, think, reflect, pray, whatever I need to do to, to reflect it so I can move through the feelings because I don't want the feelings to go away. They're a messenger. But the realistic world, I am so stressed. I'm trying to take care of four kids, disappointments going on somewhat, you know, I'm still changing diapers. I mean, like there's chaos 
And then that's not even on top of all this COVID and all this additional stress. My dad has cancer. I mean, like ton of stuff going on in the world. It's not right. <laughs> and so I don't lay, I don't set aside that time that would be in my best interest. And so my way of coping, my, my body, it's kind of like, it probably steps on its own boundaries and says, Joe, I need this time to process these negative feelings because I'm feeling pretty yucky inside and you're ignoring it. And mm. oh, sorry, that's my alarm. It's okay. <laughs> it is time to put the kids to bed, but I got someone else doing it. <laughs> so all, all that to say, it started out, I think, in high school, you know, being insecure or middle school, really being insecure and embarrassed. And I didn't know how to deal with it. So my way of processing it was to medicate my feelings by picking until it numbed the pain I felt in my heart. To take that back to BFRBs and anxiety, why am I doing this? Why am I such a bad person? Why am I so stupid? Well, let's, let's, why am I doing this? What, what am I stressed out about? Uh, John Mulaney, the stand-up comic, said college was like a four-year-long game show called Do My Friends Hate Me or Do I Just Need to Sleep? Do, am I tired? Do I just need to go like lie down for a minute? Am I hungry? You know, is it something so simple that if I just stop to ask myself and do a little bit of introspection or just a little bit of self-analysis, can I realize, okay, I'm anxious about this. I'm anxious about making a phone call because I'm a millennial and I'd hate making phone calls. And do I just need to admit that and say, okay, I'm, I'm a little nervous about this. You know, sometimes if I have to call a bunch of people, I will write notes. This is what I'm going to say. This is my this is my opening statement in case somebody I you know somebody picked up the phone and is like what and I'm like oh hi <laughs> you know instead of being all stressed out what what can I do about this is it is it a tiny little thing that I've let just kind of blow out of proportion is it a significant thing that I need to spend some time unpacking did somebody really actually say something offensive and hurtful to me. And I need to I need to feel those feelings, you know, a little bit before I can let them go. Or am I just hungry? If I just go get a cheese stick, will I feel better? My my three year old. That's what it is most yeah. of the time. She, you know, she come into the room screaming at me and like, here, have a cookie. You know, have have some cheese. Go and and go about your day. You know, and then she's fine. Sometimes I'm just a really tall three-year-old that way. Yeah. Oh, we're all just really tall three-year-olds. I love that. <laughs> if you think about it, our skin, it's like the original boundary. It is the boundary that our body came with. A few months ago, I watched a presentation by French psychologist Alexandra Lecart, in which she explains that BFRBs may sometimes be instigated by a subconscious compulsion to extract unwanted feelings or emotions from our bodies. Sometimes, I will repeatedly replay an unwanted or uncomfortable interaction in my mind as I pull out my hair. Get out! Get out from under my skin! I couldn't find the courage to push back during that conversation, so I make up for it in front of the mirror. Something I'm coming to appreciate is how wise our bodies are. Like before I have the words for it, before my brain can catch up, my body feels and knows something deep inside. And the way my body communicates that information to my brain is by way of my BFRB. It's actually pretty incredible. Related to that, 
here's Joe on what Eric was saying earlier about developing an emotional fluency or an awareness and finding the words for feelings. I think it's a really interesting relationship between words and feelings. There's this Taoist poem that says, a word is not a feeling. It points to the feeling. It catches it. Once you have the feeling, you can get rid of the word. Without the word, it's really hard to catch. What compels me so much to talk about others, about their BFRBs, is I hear the words other people are using, and I can experiment with them. And that's how my self-awareness grows. Now, I kind of mostly know my feelings, or I'm getting better at recognizing, oh, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling embarrassed, I'm feeling underaccomplished, I'm feeling, you know, I can fill in. Now I'm to the point where I can fill in the names of those feelings a lot better but I'm still working on how do I process that? And part of it is my perfectionism at coming out in the sense of, I kind of think I'm a failure, like it's all or nothing. And so, and I'm, I see a counselor still to this day. And one of the things that she helped me through is that I was feeling like a bad person, like bad, as if I'm not good enough to be here equal with everyone else because I don't get my to-do list done. I, I have this standard. I need to meet these expectations of myself. I put that on myself. And so instead of saying, oh, I got, you know, 75% done, or I got like three things done out of 20, like, I don't see the three things I got. I see the 17 that I left behind. I see, wow, I didn't do good enough. Therefore, I am bad. And that's the shame cycle. And that's what's coming out through therapy, through I'm talking um, with the picking me, like we have our, our support group meetings online. And it's just, I'm realizing I am lovable, even when I don't get my to-do list done. And it's a really good feeling. And now that's an example, but like, I feel bad, like for anything I fail on. You know, one, one thing that, that happens too, sometimes when we're having conversations with, uh, with stakeholders, with community members that they say, well, you know, you guys did this 12 years ago and, and that was bad and, and I've hated you ever since. And it's like, okay, well, I'm here now. What, you know, what, what do you want? Well, you guys did this and this and this. Okay, but what do you want? What do you want now? You know, and I can do that to myself. Oh my goodness, I messed up. I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, we're here. We're here right now. What are we doing right now? Are, are we here to like rehash what happened seven years ago or are we here to do something productive? I can sit on that internalized anxiety and guilt forever. I could let myself do that. But at some point, I think that is part of growing up is saying, all right, now we're going to we're going to look at where do we go from here? You know, being able to let that go, saying, ah, I messed up at that. So what what happens now? You know, are we just going to sit around being ashamed of messing up on that? Or are we going to ask for help? Are we going to, are we going to learn something rather than beat ourselves up for not knowing it the first time? For so long, I've evaluated my own self-worth based on how other people perceive me. Here's Joe unpacking this people-pleasing tendency. Yeah, because one thing could go wrong and it destroys the whole thing. Like for me, it's, I think I, and at least I know I have a tendency, I'm, I'm aware of it now, which is that's a victory um, to earn my like self-worth through my performance. Like if I do good enough, then I have a right to be here or then people will like me or then I'll make someone happy. And that's the people pleasing too. And so for me, failure 
my tendency or how I've defined it in my past is, do I make someone else happy? And that's a very bad judgment, like, because you cannot, first off, there's no way you can make everyone happy. So you're going to be failure to some and supportive of someone else. So that's messed up right there. But even then, even if I could somehow please everyone else, it might still might not be the right thing to do. I'm sorting out where to put my self-worth. Go, Joe. In the past, I'd mess up and I'd blame myself. Eric mentions how it's almost as if we want someone to blame and how really that gets in the way of growth. It's easier to blame yourself when something goes wrong because, you know, we don't want to get in a confrontation or we don't want to, we don't want to make waves. We don't want to cause problems. And so, you know, part of getting out of that too is being able to look at other people with compassion and say, you know, somebody honks on the road and maybe it wasn't anything I did, you know, but that doesn't automatically mean that I have to like confront this person or be mad at them. I can have compassion on them too and say, well, maybe they're just having a bad day or maybe they just hit the steering wheel accidentally and they're extremely embarrassed that they're, they're horn honked and they're really hoping that I won't look at them, you know, and whether or not that's true, I, I don't know, you know, but I think sometimes I will blame myself for something because I want to blame somebody else, but then I'm ashamed to blame somebody else. It's like, okay, but I could just look at this in a way, I say just, it's not just, it's very difficult. I could, I could look at this in a way that doesn't make the other person a bad person either. You know, obviously there are cases where the other person is a bad person and, and you need to get out of the situation, but in like everyday minor interactions that build up to anxiety my coworker said something in a meeting that put me off a little bit. And I say, okay, I must have done something wrong because I'd rather not confront my coworker about it. But if I have a little bit more time to say, well, I don't know why my coworker said that. Maybe they are having a bad day or maybe they don't understand something. Let me come at this from a little bit more open-minded perspective rather than the reason they said something that, that offended me must be because they don't like me. Maybe they had no idea. You know, I, I uh, Sometimes people will say things like, well, there's no service here. And, and that really bugs me because I'm like, yes, there is. There's a bus that goes right there. Why are you so ignorant? And I have to pull myself out of that too and just say, all right, I'm going to look at this. Say They have probably, you know, this city council member has probably heard something. Somebody complained to them. Somebody's probably giving them a hard time. And so they're coming to me and saying, why, why aren't you doing this? And if I just come back and say, well, we are and you're stupid. That's not going to help anything, you know, so I have to come at this and say, well, okay, so what have you heard or have you ever tried to take the bus here? What was your experience? Or, I mean, Mm. most of the city council members have not taken a bus anywhere, Um, but (laughs) you you can cut that part out, but. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to all the city councilors out there. (laughs) I might be internalizing something because I think somebody doesn't like me. And I'm actually totally wrong about that. They, they have no idea that they've even done anything to put me off. And so I'm putting myself through all of this emotional labor that is completely unnecessary. As you know, the theme for this episode is boundaries. What are realistic boundaries we set up with other people? And how do we create boundaries with ourselves? Earlier, Joe mentioned that you teach people how you are to be treated. 
How have I taught myself how I should be treated? It's useful to explore how I shaped my own definitions of success and failure. When we're too hard on ourselves, it's this boundary that we've eroded. And so how do we start riding that bike? How do we protect ourselves from ourselves? Joe has one suggestion of being selective of who to let in. Whose opinions matter? Whose don't? Yeah, not to let their opinion of you define you. You don't have to take that on yourself. That's what I'm I'm learning and growing out of. I'm responsible for my actions and my, you know, sphere of like what I can think, feel, and do. I'm not responsible for someone else's and to let them in that inner space. Like we choose who we let in that inner space to define us. And I let my friends in there. I need their input. Hey, you like, I I sent this email, whatever it is. And I was kind of controversial. Did I come across in a good way? Like I, I've already, cause I'm, I'm my anxiety too. Like I've, I've shown my friends some of those, those things or talked about what I did. And, um, so I do let some people in and they give me helpful feedback, but to let everyone give you feedback becomes toxic. And I definitely relate to the people pleasing Jason because um, that's been a lifelong struggle, but it's better now than it ever has been. And I've probably displeased the most people during COVID that I have in my life ever. <laughs> I'm learning stand high five virtual high five um stand up for what is important to me like my values and and what who are you like if you are wish washed to like whoever well then who is joanne who is you know jason like though our values are what makes us who we are and who what defines us to a certain extent like if i just bend for anyone else and i'm letting those people define me and i'm not standing or, or I'm not anyone like and I think that emptiness is what I felt too um in my BFRB because I would feel that empty because I was trying to reach out and letting all those influences in like I'd be unhappy if anyone even if I didn't like the person like the, the one girl that was teasing me for being in the back seat I didn't even like her because she was mean but her opinion mattered to me and now I think that's just her opinion <laughs> like it's not worth losing sleep especially remembering like this this probably what 40 like 22 years later why do I even remember that it's because it was important to me at and it hurt that deep at the time but yeah yeah but yeah and, and I think now as I hope if someone would say or do something you know like that to me and I I look at what are they thinking and I, I wouldn't think you know more than five minutes on it I'd be like, no, I, I don't trust that person's opinion. So for me, I think that was it. I was letting those people in, in that inner heart space to define me that really didn't earn that right to be there. It's a good point, you know, that a little anxiety can be a good thing. There's good parts and bad parts about all of our traits. Someone can be very loyal and that's good. But if that goes the wrong way, then somebody could be like really clingy and, uh, you know, the relationship becomes codependent or toxic. I think that's, that's part of it, too, is saying, okay, well, what is this, this anxiety, the way that my brain processes things, how can that be good? And I think you can say it's good because I'm very self-aware, you know, try not to be too self-aware, but like, I want to do a good job at this presentation or at this phone call, 
or the state or whatever the the situation is, you know, I don't want to just like go out there and not care what the other person thinks, you know? And so I think it can be good. We kind of have to channel it though and say, this is, I recognize that I can go too far on this and I can over prepare and you know, I've, I've lived through all the stress of this phone call seven times before I even make the phone call. When I actually make the phone call, it's fine. And I just spent, you know, like you say, you've spent a half hour stressing out over this phone call that, that wasn't stressful. If I hadn't done any preparation, maybe it wouldn't have gone as well. But if I do too much, then I've just wasted my own time and emotional energy. And, and you know, that's not productive either. If it takes me a half hour to send an email at work because I'm correcting every single word to make sure that it's exactly right. I have started just sending emails. When I'm sending it to a large group, I will just put all the names in alphabetical order because I used to worry about, well, does, if I put this person first, will they think that I think that they're more important than the other person? And this person's a VP, so they should probably go first, but, but then what's the hierarchy? It's like, I'm just going to put your names in alphabetical order in the two line and you all can deal with it. You know, if, if in the extremely unlikely event that one of my coworkers emailed me back and was like, why did you put me last? That's never happened. It's probably never going to happen. <laughs> but in case it ever did, I can say, well, because it's in alphabetical order by last name. Sorry, Jason. Your last name starts with a Y. You're you're, yeah, you're going to be at the end I'm, of the two lists. The bottom of the list. I get it. <laughs> Sometimes you do have to you do that with yourself a little bit. I think and say, look, this is. I'm not spending any more time, any more anxiety on mm. whose name I put first in the email. I'm so we're just going to move on from that. And we're going to do where we have a system. And, uh, you know, it probably sounds a little bit ridiculous to have a system for that, but it's like, okay, a little bit of anxiety is good, but we got to manage it. (laughs) I love that so much. Okay, Eric, let's try to summarize this episode. Right. I guess how much emotional space we're giving to something and how in tune am I to what's really going on? Is it something that, that I need to stress about? Or is it something that I could move on from? And that, you know, that comes back to, am I, am I picking? Am I picking about something that doesn't deserve this level of investment? You know, am I, am I picking because I'm stressed out about this email? Just send the stupid email and leave your fingers alone. You know, it, it's, it's not easy, but I think it is something that we can practice. You know, it's, you can, we can get better at the language of our BFRB, the language of our anxiety and recognize what those messages are and and hopefully get better at moving on. In this episode, we talked about how setting boundaries is a three-step process. One, having the self-worth to define boundaries. Two, having the awareness to notice when they're stepped on. And three, having the courage to enforce them. And it's a journey filled with experimentation and mistakes and lots and lots of practice. And for this journey, Eric is going to leave us with some advice. I think success also, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, is in how you perceive yourself with a BFRB. How do we have compassion for ourselves? How do we honor, you know, this this gift, if you will? You know, how do you see it as 
as something positive and not uh, not as just a flaw. And I can't remember who I, I read it somewhere a long time ago. So <laughs> uh, this is out there somewhere. Somebody talking about you know depression and anxiety is kind of like an autoimmune disease for your brain. If you have an autoimmune disease physically, your body thinks it's helping. It, it might be attacking its own cells, but it's trying to, it's doing its best, bless, bless its heart. And it's really hard <laughs> to see that in a compassionate way, but it's kind of like, okay, well, my brain is trying. You know, when, I, when I'm feeling this anxiety or when I'm feeling this compulsion, you know, it's because my brain is doing the best that it can with what it's got. And so I would think it's a victory to be able to be in that headspace to say, all right, I, I love myself, even though I don't like myself right now, you know, but I, I have compassion on my own brain, on my own mind, and I can recognize, okay, this isn't necessarily something that we want to do, but it doesn't mean that I'm a flawed, horrible person. It just means it's time to put the tape back on. You know, there are days that I'm really good at that, and there are days that I'm really bad at that. I think you can count success in how am I handling it? How am I dealing with it? How am I perceiving myself? You know, any gift that you've been given. And so in the case of uh, dermatillomania, you could say um, the gift maybe isn't the compulsion to pick, but the recognition of the compassion for yourself. And how does that make me a better person? How does that help me make other people's lives better? And so that, that's a victory too. If I can take this and find some way to turn it into a good thing, then I've won. That's so beautiful. I could cry. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Joe. That is our episode for today. If you want to practice getting over your email anxiety, you can reach us at fidgetpodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is at fidgetpodcast. And you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more people who might benefit from these conversations. Thanks to those who are supporting us through our Patreon. Thank you, of course, to Cheyenne for our logo, to Thomas for our theme music. And until next episode, stay tuned. <laughs>